listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for your support of The Coffee Hour. You can find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. We are back to our history series. We left off in the middle of a very, very interesting story, and I cannot wait to hear the end of it. Joining us today, the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thanks for joining us again, Dr. McKenzie. I'm glad to be here again. Thanks for having me. All right. Last time we left off with the Kramers crossing the ocean and some wild stuff was happening. So we got to finish out his story. What else happened to that ship that was crossing the ocean? Okay. The first thing you need to know is that they no sooner started out on the voyage. And by the way, Kramer is going with about 10 10 people. I think there were four couples and a couple of bachelors. But at any rate, there are these couples, but they aren't married. And so the first thing he has to do is he has to has to get them married so they can keep on with their trip and help them out. Part of the reason why they weren't married is because there were all kinds of legal things they had to go through. You had to have enough money and so forth. But they're OK once they're on the Atlantic and uh, Pastor Kramer can marry him. OK, well, as I said at the end of our last program, bad things happen on this on this voyage. They have iceberg problem. And at the very end, they have this smallpox problem. And it is a problem. Smallpox, of course, is deadly. Now, what Kramer did during the smallpox epidemic was go around and be a pastor to these people who were uh, so sick. And he observed that there was a young woman who had thrown herself into caring for the sick people, nursing the sick people. And, you know, we're talking about taking care of their vomit, their feces, et cetera. So it was not pleasant work at all. And this, this, this gal is doing it. And Kramer was very much impressed by her Christian charity and so forth. And in point of fact, he fell in love with her. They fell in love on board ship. And so as soon as they docked in the New York Harbor, they located a Lutheran pastor and they got married. Now you would think, wow, everybody should be glad the pastor is married. We're heading to the frontier. But no, Dorothea Kramer had been coming to America as an unwed mother. And mm-hmm. she was accompanied by her, her little boy. So the, the kind of upstanding, respectable members of his flock were a little upset by this. I mean, this just wouldn't have happened in the old country. Mm-hmm. But in America, all things are possible. And it turned out that Dorothea Kramer was a wonderful help to Kramer through his Indian ministry and then as professor and president of the seminary, whose family we're going to talk about here shortly. So it was really a great, a great marriage and God really blessed them. But yeah, it was a little, little bit scandalous from the standpoint of, of his members. So they get to New York and how are they going to get to Michigan? That's where they're headed. Kramer had purchased land on the Cass River and you know, it's kind of like the thumb area of Michigan. Well, they have to, they're going to, they want to do the water route. That's always the best way to travel. But there were railroads by the uh, 1840s. So they take a, they take a railroad up to Albany, New York, where they're going to catch the canal and go across the Great Lakes, et cetera. Well, they have a train wreck while they're uh, on the uh, uh, traveling by train. Uh, Nobody's hurt, nobody's injured. But again, it's kind of a difficulty that they have to work their way through. Finally, they get to Detroit, and from Detroit, they get voyage up the Great Lakes, finally Cass River, 
and get to the wilderness of Michigan where Leah has purchased land for them to settle. And what they do there is establish a small community. It's close to where Indians are. That's why they're there. And Leah's idea was that the congregation would work to support the pastor who not only would serve them, but would also be a missionary to the Indians. And incidentally, they would demonstrate to the Indians what it meant to live like Christians. So that was the goal. Kramer, he doesn't know any Indian language, but he was fluent in English. So how was he going to get the gospel to these Indians? Well, he seeks out somebody who can talk to the Indians, and he finds a French fur trapper. Now, the French fur trapper knows English as well as Indian. So here you have this German Lutheran talking English to a French fur trapper who now shares the gospel with the Indians. And so it just shows you kind of the dedication that Kramer had. He was going to get that gospel out there to those Indians. That's why he was there. Later on, he's going to uh, translate to the small catechism and the Chippewa so that he can now start doing some work in their language as well. And the work was successful, not hugely so, but if you go to Frankenmuth, Michigan today, and you go to St. Lawrence Church, it's the church that Kramer and his people founded, and you go to the cemetery, the burial grounds, there you will find some Indian graves of people who died in the faith because of the missionary ministry of, of Friedrich August Kramer. So it's, it's, it's kind of a very nice story, and I like to always tell this. And Leah was pleased with the results. However, as Germans found that this was a good place to settle, more and more immigrants came in and settled German congregations, not just Indian mission congregations. So Leah had to rethink what he was doing there, and he began to send congregations and pastors, congregations made up of poor Germans looking for economic opportunities. But instead of sending them by themselves and then they could wait for a pastor, Leah recruited a pastor to accompany them. And so up in that part of Michigan, you not only have Frank and Muth, which means the courage of the Franks, you have three other congregations that uh, Leah uh, helped to found. Frankenlust, which means the delight or pleasure of the Franks, Frankentrost, the consolation of the Franks, and then Frankenhill, the help of the Franks. All of these organized and sent by Leah as missionaries, the first one to the Indians, but then otherwise just missionary colonies for good Germans. So that's Leah. He has got this fertile imagination, knows how to organize, recruit, and so he does this and gives kind of a, a jump start to uh, Lutheranism here on, the, here on the frontier. He had one other idea that I want to pursue here for a moment, and this is going to bring in another founding uh, father of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and this is Wilhelm Zieler, Wilhelm Zieler, S-I-H-L-E-R. When Synod is organized, he's going to be the uh, uh, first vice president of the Missouri Synod. Now, Zeeler, again, like so many of these other guys, has this kind of interesting, colorful background. He is uh, from, well, his father was an army officer in the Prussian army. And remember that Prussia has this great military tradition. They helped to defeat Napoleon and so forth. So that's the kind of family from which he comes. 
And Sealer, too, was groomed for the military and actually did serve a stint in it, but he, he quit. He didn't want to do that. He went to the University of Berlin, and there he studied not theology, but philosophy and languages. Later on, he was actually awarded a doctorate by the university, but again, not for theology, but for some of his literary philosophical studies. Now, he was not particularly Christian, but he was exposed to Christianity and was, was open to it, was open to it. He embarked upon a career as a teacher, a teacher at a boys' school. And one of the things you have to do as a teacher is you have to discipline your students. And having once been a boy myself, I know that boys can be a little rowdy. And they were rowdy. And he got so upset with them that he blew up, he exploded, and he stormed out of the classroom. Slammed the door, off he went. Now, once he had done this, returned to his room, he realized how stupid this was, how, um, well, he was really embarrassed. <laughs> he was humiliated. And so this kind of proud Prussian had to come face to face uh, with his own uh, weaknesses, or as we would say, his own sinfulness. And actually, it was an important converting experience. He, in the wake of that, realized how much he needed a savior. So he's now interested in religion, becoming a Lutheran, becoming a Christian. He continued on as a teacher until, like Kramer, he came across some of Wienicke's material and said, you know, that's what I ought to do too. So he offered himself for the American mission field. There was a mission society called the Dresden Mission Society who was willing to take him on, train him, and send him. He corresponded with Wilhelm Leia, who by this time had a reputation for doing this kind of work. And Leia said, hmm, I think you might be the right man for a frontier seminary. <laughs> and that was what happened. Sealer came to Ohio, served there for a few months, then when Wieniken, we'll talk about this a little bit, Wieniken took a call from Fort Wayne and Friedheim back to Baltimore to become Hesper's successor, but he wasn't going to leave until the congregation called a successor for him, and they called Sealer. So Sealer became Wieniken's successor in Fort Wayne. And after he had settled in there, he and Leah followed through on this idea that they had about creating a seminary on the frontier. And this would be a place to which Leah could send some of the men he had started to train to kind of finish up their training after they got here and were kind of become familiar with the surroundings and the setting, as well as to recruit men here in America from the frontier. Once again, this was not going to be a seminary which started to train you when you were in grade school and give you all of the Latin, the Hebrew, the Greek, etc. It was going to be a program to get men into the ministry as quickly as possible by giving them the doctrine, the Bible, the, you know, the training and preaching and teaching, the stuff that you needed to deal with these poor congregations that were scattered all over the American frontier. So it was in the uh, fall of 1846 that a teacher that Leah had recruited and about a dozen students arrived in Fort Wayne and began 
a seminary in Fort Wayne. And that institution has grown up to be the seminary that's here in Fort Wayne, Concordia Theological uh, Seminary. So that's another institution for which we have many to thank, but Wilhelm Lea especially. So we got the Indian Mission, the uh, seminary in Fort Wayne, and all of those uh, pastors and congregations that Lea helped to organize here on the frontier. So, um, wow. okay. yeah. Let's take a pause there okay. and we'll continue with this history in just a moment. I'm learning so much. I didn't realize, I knew a little bit of the history of the Fort Wayne Seminary, but yeah, that's fascinating. All right, we'll continue the conversation in just a moment. We're talking with Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are learning history of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod with Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which we just learned how it started. Mm-hmm. So great history, Wilhelm Lea, and mm-hmm. the, the history of forming a seminary to get men into the ministry as quickly as possible with proper education as well. That's just fascinating. Yeah. Proper education and proper commitment. Mm. Yeah. 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 All right. So we've, we've learned quite a bit about Leah. Where, where do you want to go in history from here and the founding of the seminary in Fort Wayne? Uh, well, I do have another just bit of trivia. I don't know if we'll cover much more of the history of the seminary in Fort Wayne. So it started in Fort Wayne. It moved to Springfield at some point, right? And then oh, moved back right. to Fort Wayne. It's, it's kind of a great story. All right. In 61, they started thinking about moving the Fort Wayne Seminary to St. Louis so they could combine forces, you know, even though two very much different institutions, some of the, maybe some of the courses could be taught together or the professors could teach in both divisions. And down in St. Louis by that time, the prep school division was growing by leaps and bounds. And so they're crowded in their facilities. So that was another thought. Send the boys up to Indiana and the men down to uh, St. Louis. Moreover, the Civil War has begun. Mm -hmm. And in Fort Wayne, men were subject to the draft. That wouldn't be true of the kids in the gymnasium. That was not true uh, in St. Louis. But St. Louis and Missouri was a border state, so it was more dangerous for the kids to be down there and they'd be safer in Fort Wayne. So that was the reason for the switch. The prep school left St. Louis and came to uh, Fort Wayne and the seminary, the practical seminary, the latest seminary, moved to St. Louis. And it was in St. Louis for about 14 years. And again, this, remember, the Germans are coming. The Senate is growing. It's expanding. They need more room in St. Louis. And it was the Springfield congregation 
that basically purchased a campus that had been started by the Swedish Lutheran some years earlier, and they were willing to kind of donate it to the Senate if the Senate would move the practical seminary. So they did, and that was in 1875. And so this institution that I teach at was in Springfield for basically 100 years from 1875 to 1975 until it moved back to Fort Wayne and we've been in Fort Wayne ever since. So we're kind of the seminary that moves around. Wow. It's like the tabernacle. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. Sorry. (laughs) Well, anyway, back to the frontier. So we're going, let's see, we're, we're going, we're in the midst of Fort Wayne Seminary history, all of the frontier religion happening. What was that frontier religious culture like? Because that that influenced pastors and congregations and education and, and all of that. It, it surely it sure did. And that's where we, we want to go back to Leah for a second. You remember in his instructions, he said two things. You're to serve Lutheran congregations, not mixed congregations, and you're to join a Lutheran Senate. Those were two of, of his instructions. Well, for one thing, there were lots of congregations on the frontier where you had, well, not only on the frontier, all over the country, which were, we'll we'll just call them union congregations. They had people from Lutheran parts of Germany and they had people from Reformed parts of Germany. They had settled in the same region. So they kind of pooled resources to establish one congregation and they expected a pastor who would serve both groups. But Leah had said, and he was, he was correct, he said, well, you can't be Lutheran one Sunday and reform the next Sunday. Sure. You have to teach and preach consistently with the scriptures. And as we believe, those scriptures were properly confessed in the Lutheran confessions. So that's what the men were trained in. That's the kind of commitment they had when they came. And so they had to be consistent with that in the congregations that they serve. Now, one of those congregations that was mixed was actually the Fort Wayne congregation that Wienikin was serving. And Wienikin initially came over as a generic Protestant missionary. Now, he was Lutheran, but he was sent by a mission society that wasn't too fussy, and he wasn't too fussy either. So he served this congregation, which had Lutherans and Reformed in it. But when he went back to Germany on a preaching tour, one of those with whom he came in contact, and he wasn't the only one, was Wilhelm Leo, because the, the big supporters of the Winnikin mission were also the ones most interested in kind of Lutheran missions, Lutheran work. They didn't want any of this unionism stuff that was going on in Prussia. So Leo came to realize that, or not Leo, Winnikin came to realize under Leo's influence that if he's even going to be a Lutheran missionary, he had to make sure that his people were Lutheran. So he had to instruct them and teach them and so forth. So he came back. And one of the things that happened in his congregation was a split. The people who wanted to stay Reformed, they ended up leaving and forming a Reformed congregation here in Fort Wayne. And the rest stayed under Wienikin and became Lutheran. So Church splits were kind of a characteristic of kind of what happened as these confessions and ideas became clearer, both to the pastors and the people that they were serving. 
I'll, I'll continue with Winniken because you'll find that interesting, I'm sure. When he took his call back to Baltimore and he began serving uh, the Baltimore parish on his first Sunday, it was a communion Sunday. And as he was uh, getting ready for that service, he saw that the elders had laid out two kinds of bread. There was regular bread on the one place, and then there were the wafers on the other side. So he said, what's, what's going on here? And then they told him, well, we've always done it this way. We've got some people who use the bread. We've got other people who use the wafers. Dang. And so Winnegan explores more and find out that this was a mixed congregation. They've got Reformed members who rejected the real presence. So they got the bread and then they had Lutherans who accepted the real presence. So they got the wafers. Okay. So Winnegan, by this time, Winnegan's a Lutheran. He says, well, I can't do this. I'm not, I, I can't start my ministry this way. I'm going to have to quit. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm not going to do this. Well, the elder said, well, nobody ever told us this was wrong. We, we didn't want, we, we don't want to do anything that's wrong. Will you please do it just this one time, just this one time? <laughs> and Winnegan said, well, okay, I'll do it this one time. And he did. But then after church was over, he talked to the people and he said, this, this, this has got to change. And so over the next few weeks, he instructed them and it finally changed again. Some of the reformed left, but uh, we can go, go forward and minister to just a Lutheran congregation. So Winnegan's experience was typical of many congregations on the frontier in which the Lutherans had to kind of work with the people, a decision would be made, and sometimes there were church splits. Sometimes the pastor left because they wanted to be reformed. The other thing that Leah had said is you must join a um, you must join a Lutheran synod. So all of these guys had joined existing Lutheran church bodies when they came here. Winnikin had joined a group called the Synod of the West, and then in Baltimore he belonged to a group that was a part of the General Synod. Kramer had joined the Michigan Synod. Seeler and others of the Lehman, Adam Ernst and Berger, they had joined the Ohio Synod. So you had all these little Lutheran church bodies to which the Lehman lined up. But they discovered that in every one of the instances that I've mentioned, it really wasn't a very Lutheran church body. So for example, in Michigan, Kramer belonged to the Michigan Synod. The man who had started it told Kramer, yes, we're Lutheran, just join your Lutheran. Well, Kramer's in it. And sometime later, a new guy shows up. He's also a missionary to the Indians, but he, he subscribes to the Heidelberg Catechism. He's German Reformed. He's not German Lutheran. <laughs> and Papa Schmidt, the founder of this, says, come on in, you can join too. So Kramer says, no, this, this is not the kind of synod I'm supposed to be in. I'm supposed to be in a Lutheran synod. So Michigan synod is not going to work. Winnikin goes back to Baltimore. He's in the general synod. There they have some sophisticated theologians. This Benjamin Kurtz that we mentioned before is one of the guys who suggested Missouri, as well as a fellow by the name of Samuel Simon Schmucker. He actually wrote theology. And in his dogmatics book, he talked about different views of the Lord's Supper. And he said, well, here in the Lutheran church, it doesn't matter which view you hold. And it ranged all the way from real presence down to swingless memorialism. And any one of those was good. 
And when Wienikin brought to this to their attention that this is not Lutheran, if you want to be Lutheran, you have to be what our confessions say. You have to be what Luther said. They rejected Winnikin's opposition. So Winnikin ended up rejecting them. So he needs a Lutheran church body. But the bulk of the laymen had joined the Ohio Synod. Some of them had actually even attended uh, the Ohio Seminary for a while. And so Leah thought, well, then Ohio will be the place that my men can go and that we can support. But Ohio also was having its theological tensions. Here we're going to introduce another issue that's important in the founding of the Synod. We're going to have to do that next time. That's what I was going to say. I wonder if we had time to do this, and I can see that we don't. We should do that next time, but I do have a burning question. <gasps> we probably can't answer it in, in this episode, but I'll at least throw it out there. So all these, it sounds like there were multiple synods that were formed. Many were like Protestant synods right. that, that were Lutheran and Reformed and, and maybe what other other confessions there were floating around out there. What was the purpose of these synods in maybe just a word or two? What were <laughs> what was the purpose of forming these synods if they were combining or unionizing, bringing together different confessions? Well, I mean, a couple of things. One is they would kind of help organize mission work. They would also help to uh, referee problems between pastors and congregations. Uh, one of the things that they would always be concerned about was kind of the moral standing of their pastors. Remember, we have these vagabond preachers, guys who are mm -hmm. child molesters and so forth. So they would want to make sure that they have people with good ethical standards. But what they're not interested in, in particular, is doctrine. And there is even a further complication here in America because some of these Lutherans want to be American Protestant as opposed to being confessional Lutheran. And that enters into this mix as well. And we've got to talk a little bit about that in connection with this Ohio Synod mm. that we have uh, started discussing. Do that next we'll time. Do that next time. <laughs> it oh, in, <laughs> in our 240 part series. That's <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. I'm fine with that. So let's oh, I was just thinking, I want to unpack all these other in, all these other synods and why they were formed. I want to like know a little bit more about this I mean, too, but that would be a 240-part <laughs> synod. Um, and apparently they want him to teach classes at the seminary, so we should probably let him do that too. Dr. McKenzie, thank you so much for joining us for this episode and looking forward to learning more with you next time. Okay, thanks. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to kfuo.org slash store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual Share-a-thon for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to kfuo.org slash store.